the old pilot's plain tales, the ghost fleet. This is the BBC with John Snaggs reading. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. The first official news came just after half past nine when Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force issued communique number one. It read, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. Planning for Operation Overlord began in earnest in 1943 when Dwight D. Eisenhower was made Supreme Commander. British General Bernard Montgomery, hero of the 8th Army in North Africa, was put in charge of the ground troops. The heroism of the invasion armies cannot be understated, and it's not my intention to ignore them but not many of us know what was going on in the air above the bloody beaches of Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau and Sword, or in the back rooms where boffins worked through the nights. Certainly there wasn't the same awful price paid in lives lost, but some unglamorous essential missions were being flown that would be crucial to the invasion. It was vital that everything possible should be done to divert the enemy's attention away from the real landing areas in Normandy, and a number of ploys were used in an attempt to present Calais as the actual location. Under the overall umbrella of Operation Bodyguard, several deceptions took place. A large number of non-existent units were invented, and their physical presence faked by the use of dummy aircraft, airfields, landing craft and other infrastructure. Controlled leaks were made through diplomatic channels and via wireless traffic. German intelligence was fooled by the use of double agents such as Juan Garcia, known as Garbo, a Catalonian who had been recruited by German intelligence. He sent them abundant but convincing disinformation from Lisbon in return for money, and eventually the Allies accepted his offer to work for them, so he ended up being paid by both sides. He created a network of 27 imaginary sub-agents, and the Germans unwittingly paid the British Exchequer large amounts of money regularly, thinking they were funding a network loyal to themselves. Garcia was awarded both the Iron Cross by the Germans and the MBE by the British. To divert attention from the real invasion force, however, also needed real-time deception, and the use of a newly developed electronic countermeasure, codenamed Window. Window, which nowadays we call CHAF, had been conceived in 1940 at the Telecommunications Research Establishment by Joan Curran, 
who suggested that metal strips cut to the frequency of a radar would reflect back a strong enough signal to either appear to be a target or perhaps completely swamp the receiver. Various metals, lengths and widths were used, but it was discovered that a simple oblong made from tin foil worked best. During the trials, thought was given to what the enemy might make of the metal strips, as they were bound to be discovered. It was suggested that they might be sandwiched between paper sheets printed with propaganda like leaflets. Ultimately, however, the use of window was banned for a long time in an effort to protect the discovery, as Britain's radar system was a vital asset and it was equally vulnerable. As it turned out, however, Germany had already developed their own version of window, called Duppel. When Goering heard about the German trials, he was horrified, concerned that the British would discover the secret, and he immediately ordered all documents destroyed and work to cease, even attempts to develop a countermeasure. Having sat on the secret for four years, Operation Overlord was considered important enough to risk revealing window to the Germans, little knowing that they already had the technology. The invasion was considered so important that two of the best-trained RAF squadrons in existence were to be used employing window, 218 and 617, the famous dambusters. Their task was to create a huge decoy fleet sailing across the channel at a steady eight knots, which should look to the Germans' radar just like the real invasion fleet. They needed to keep up the deception for a full ten hours. This elaborate bit of spoofing was only part of an overall plan. The rest depended on leaving a few specific German radar sites operational to see the ghost fleet, whilst disabling the ones that might detect the real invasion. On the French coast was a formidable wall of radar stations, equipped with the whole menagerie of German ground radars. In the spring of 1944, the Scientific Intelligence Department had built up a comprehensive picture of the enemy coastal network, but this had to be kept continually updated as mobile Freyer and Würzburg systems could be moved quickly and be operational in only a few hours. The department had developed a special ground direction finder which could measure the bearing of an enemy radar beam to an accuracy of a quarter of a degree. Three of these sets, named ping-pongs, were located along the south coast and they set about fixing the positions of the sites that they wanted to target. Once located, a recce aircraft would then photograph the location to confirm the position and then an attack would be tasked. The RAF's 2nd Tactical Air Force was given the job and they employed 12 Typhoons of 198 Squadron on the first attack. Approaching Ostend coast at height, as if they were after inland targets, the leading four aircraft peeled off and streaked in at treetop height, whilst the rest of the formation strafed the flak emplacements and surrounding buildings. The huge 130-foot Wasserman radar set was soon hit by 16 rockets, but it remained standing as if unaffected. Later in the day, the squadron made a second attack, but still the tower stood. 
it was soon discovered that the Achilles heel of the Wasserman Tower was that it had to be turned to a specific position before it could be lowered for repairs. The attack had damaged the turning mechanism, so it was stuck upright, and the only way to repair it was to laboriously dismantle the entire affair. The RAF soon found that the Mammut radar also had its weakness, a mass of feeder cables at the rear of the aerial that once damaged and repaired required a prolonged and tedious series of calibration flights by aircraft flying very specific patterns before it could operate again. The feeder cables only needed to be strafed by small calibre machine guns to do sufficient damage to keep the set off the air for a long period. Prior to the invasion, the mosquitoes, spitfires and typhoons of the 2nd Tactical Air Force flew some 2,000 missions against the radar sites, putting all but 16 of the 92 out of operation. The 16 left working were those specifically chosen to be spoofed by the decoy fleet. In the lead-up to the evasion, 218 and 617 squadrons had been working intensively on the complicated and precise flying that they would have to achieve to turn their 250-mile-per-hour bombers into a vast but slowly steaming fleet. Clouds of window needed to be dropped in a very precise way to get lines of continuous blips only a few hundred yards apart. Eight aircraft were needed to create the two fleets that they were tasked with producing. They flew in two waves, flying in line abreast with two miles between each row of four bombers. The 8 by 2 mile pattern was flown at exactly 180 knots ground speed, and at the end of each seven-minute pattern they would extend forward by one mile, which meant that the actual pattern slowly progressed forwards eight miles in one hour. During the long legs of the pattern, the crews dropped their window at a timed rate of 12 bundles per minute. To add a finishing touch, other aircraft nearby were operating mandrel jammers, but allowing just enough gaps in their jamming coverage to let the German operators glimpse the ghost fleet. To add icing to the cake, a small fleet of RAF air-sea rescue launches were tasked with carrying moonshine jammers under the clouds of window. These jammers detected the German radar signals and sent back an amplified return to simulate the very large reflections that might come from a major vessel. Fourteen motorboats accompanied the RAF launches, towing large floats to which were attached special barrage balloons. Inside these naval balloons were nine-foot-wide radar reflectors, which produced an echo similar to a 10,000-ton ship. Just after midnight on the night of the invasion, this strange little fleet made its way to sea and turned on their equipment. Very soon the operators received signals from German radar sites and the game was on. Over these two little fleets, the Lancasters and Stirlings wove their complicated patterns, guided by G radio beacon receivers. One of the 617's crew members recalled, At the time I was a bit concerned about what the Germans would do when they saw us. We knew that we were bait, and expected just about every night fighter in creation to roll up. 
Our Lancaster was full of window from nose to tail. If we were forced down, there would be little chance of us getting out. When the ghost fleets arrived at their stop lines, ten miles from the coast, the balloon floats were moored and naval launches then laid smoke screens behind which they broadcast the sounds of big vessels dropping their anchors with the appropriate squeals, rattles and splashes. With their deception work done, everyone hightailed it out of there and back to England. Meanwhile, an airborne armada of heavily laden aircraft filled with airborne troops and towing assault gliders was slowly flying towards the French coast. These 1,069 aircraft, most of which were completely unarmed, would have presented a perfect target to the German night fighters. Even if only a few fighters had got amongst the lumbering streams, they would have wrought havoc. The RAF took every possible precaution to distract the Luftwaffe away on that vital night. Twenty-four Lancasters and five flying fortresses were busy flying down the line of the River Somme, whilst the rear crews shoveled out clouds of window for all they were worth. The impression given would have resembled a massive bomber force that should have attracted every fighter within range. The night fighters would soon have realised that the raid was a ghost had they been able to communicate properly with their ground stations, but on every aircraft of the ghost force were special equipment operators intently working their airborne cigar jamming transmitters. That night a total of 82 ABC transmitters were airborne, ensuring that the entire spectrum of German night fighter communication frequencies was swamped. In addition, ground-based jammers were positioned on the English coast so that should any fighter accidentally discover the airborne invasion force, they would be unable to report their location. The invasion area itself was a veritable powerhouse of jamming to defeat any radar sets that might have survived the attacks of the previous weeks. There was nothing subtle about this, and it was the equivalent of throwing pepper into the enemy's eyes. In the event, the Ghost Fleet was a very successful ploy, with the coastal batteries opening up with radar-controlled guns, and e-boats were ordered to intercept. I wondered what they would have thought when all they found was a line of balloons moored off the coast. The rest of the story is history. Once the Normandy beachhead was established, no power at Hitler's command could dislodge them. However, had the Germans had unhindered use of their powerful network of radar stations, the many defenders, whose bravery was beyond question, would have reacted much more violently. The Allied lives thus saved made the whole operation a success. Such was the level of confusion created that even after the news of the Normandy landings was reported, the defenders were convinced it was a feint and they continued to wait for the main assault to come.